Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming to this evening's lecture. Uh, it gives me enormous pleasure to introduce to you my old friend and colleague, Archie Brown, the Emeritus Professor of Politics at Oxford University and an Emeritus Fellow of St. Anthony's College. His latest book is The Myth of the Strong Leader, which is the talk of his, uh, subject of his talk this evening. The book is on sale outside at a specially reduced price, and after the lecture, Professor Brown will be happy to sign the book for you. Um, it's just been published by Birdley Head. His other publications include The Gorbachev Factor, which was published in 1996, was awarded the W.J.M. McKenzie Prize of the Political Studies Association for the Best Politics Book of the Year, and also the Alec Nove Prize from Bassi's for the best book on Russia, communism, and post-communism. He also wrote Seven Years to Change the World, Perestroika in Perspective, and The Rise and Fall of Communism, uh, published in 2009, for which he also received the Mackenzie and the Nove Prizes. He's been a visiting professor uh, at Yale, at Columbia University, at various other universities. He was elected to a fellowship of the British Academy in 1991, uh, foreign Honorary Membership of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 2003, and he was appointed CMG in the Queen's Birthday Honours List of 2005 for services to UK-Russian relations and the study of political science and international affairs. And what that really means is that he's really famous for having told uh, Margaret Thatcher that Mikhail Gorbachev was a man to, with whom one could do business. <laughs> Welcome, Archie. Thank you very much, Margot. It's a very kind introduction. I hope is this working? The microphone from here. Tap it. Tap it. Yeah, I hope so. <clears throat> anyway, before I come to the title of my talk, which was, strictly speaking, what's so great about strong leaders, um, I'll say what I'm not arguing. I'm certainly not arguing that leadership in general, or political leadership specifically, is unimportant. Uh, I'll be arguing against the cult of the strong leader, not only in dictatorships, but in democracies. And by a strong leader, I mean a person who concentrates the maximum amount of power in his or her hands, dominates a wide swathe of public policy, and the political party to which he or she belongs, and claims a right to take all the big decisions. Before I go on to speak about the problems with that kind of leadership, I should mention that I pay special attention in the book to the minority of leaders who make a big difference, with separate chapters on redefining leaders, transformational leaders, and revolutionary leaders. Now, by, re <coughs> by redefining leaders, I mean those who redefine the limits of the possible in politics, Instead of identifying the middle ground and then placing themselves firmly within that middle ground, they move the centre in their direction, through persuasion and example. In Britain, I would argue, there have been only two redefining governments since the Second World War. Uh, the, government headed, the Labour government headed by Clement Attlee from <clears throat> 1945 to 1951, and the Conservative government headed by Margaret Thatcher from 1979 to 1990. Now, that does not mean that Attlee, as an individual, was a redefining leader, but he was a very effective one. 
As Prime Minister, he was closer than many of his successors have been to being just a first among equals, provided we add that some ministers were a lot more equal than others, such as Ernest Bevan, Herbert Morrison, Stafford Cripps, Hugh Dalton, later Hugh Gateskill, and the youngest member of the Cabinet appointed in 1945, an Iron Bevan. Leadership can and should be provided by political parties, by governments, by individual ministers, and not only by the Prime Minister. However, within the last three decades, the mass media in Britain have focused on the personality of party leaders and of the Prime Minister in particular. Politicians themselves, probably in response to the media, have become more obsessed with the person of the top leader. The Finnish political scientist, Lauri Karvonen, in his book The Personalisation of Politics, has noted an increase since the Second World War, in Britain in particular, in the attention in the references made in the press to Prime Ministers. He writes, the overall visibility of Prime Ministers has grown, references to their leadership qualities have become more common, and today they are referred um, much more clearly in personal terms. In Scandinavia, there's not been quite as much increase in the space devoted to prime ministers, but again, their leadership qualities are discussed much more than in the past. Well, this current fixation with the top leader, as distinct from the government collectively, leads in the British case to projecting backwards uh, onto prime, uh, prime ministers a kind of policy dominance that was never there in the first place. So very recently, the Secretary of State for Education, Michael Gove, trying to make the point that going to a public school, in the English sense, not the traditional Scottish or American meaning of public school, uh, was quite compatible with having a social conscience, um, wrote that it was the old Haley Burian Prime Minister, in other words, Attlee, who established the National Health Service and the modern welfare state. Well, that would have been news to the old boy of a Tredegar elementary school, an Iron Bevan, who was the minister responsible for introducing the NHS, and to the Labour government as a whole, which laid the foundations of the post-war welfare state. Attlee is the most respected of all Labour prime ministers, but he neither dominated policy nor dominated his party, nor did he aspire to such ascendancy during his 20 years as party leader. When Harold Lasky, implausibly, Harold Lasky, a notable professor at this institution, implausibly accused um, him in 1941 of being in danger of following in the footsteps of Ramsay MacDonald, Attlee replied, I am sorry that you suggest I am verging towards MacDonaldism. As you have so well pointed out, I have neither the personality nor the distinction to tempt me to think that I should have any value apart from the party which I serve. Attlee's achievement as Prime Minister lay in holding together a disparate team of formidable ministers with hard-earned life experience, some large egos, significant political differences and sharp personal rivalries, helping it to become one of the major redefining governments of the last century. He fits, Attlee fits Michael Hogg's observation that the most effective leader in a given context is the group member who is best equipped to assist the group in achieving its objectives. And Joe Nye's concise definition of a leader as someone who helps a group create and achieve shared goals. 
I'll say just a little here about what I mean by transformational leaders before getting to the heart of the question in my talk. Redefining leaders are rare, but transformational leaders are still rarer, as I understand that notion. It's setting the category, the bar very high in that category for change-inducing leaders. I regard even such reforming American presidents as Franklin Roosevelt or uh, Lyndon Johnson with his civil rights and great society legislation as examples of redefining rather than transformational leadership. By transformational political leaders, I mean leaders who play a decisive part in systemic change, whether of the political system or of the economic system. It's easier to be a transformational leader if you come to power in an authoritarian system than in a democracy. Of course, it's still not easy, but by definition, there are fewer constraints on the person at the top of the hierarchy in a non-democratic system than there are in a democracy. Moreover, in a democracy, systemic change is normally sufficiently gradual that no one leader can be identified as its prime agent. So among the main examples of transformational leaders I discuss in the book, only one came to power in a democracy, and that was General Charles de Gaulle. But France in 1958 was, of course, a country in crisis. And by overseeing the transition from the Fourth Republic to the Fifth Republic, from one kind of democratic political system to another, de Gaulle was the agent of systemic change. He'd always been critical of the weakness of the executive in the, Fifth Republic, in the Fourth Republic and in favour of a stronger presidency um, directly elected. And he was able to get those changes endorsed by a referendum. Not every group which brought him back to power would, however, think that he had assisted them in attaining their objectives. Those who called for the return of de Gaulle because they wanted to end the crisis of rapidly falling governments and to end the Algerian war got their wish. Some, however, of his strong supporters had assumed that he would end the Algerian war by defeating the nationalist insurgency and by defending the French settlers, whereas he ended the war after making a virtue of masterly ambiguity by conceding Algerian independence. Two of the other transformational leaders I pay attention to in my book are Mikhail Gorbachev, you'll not be surprised to know, and Deng Xiaoping. Gorbachev played the most decisive part in the transformation of the Soviet political system, as well as of Soviet foreign policy, and Deng Xiaoping's role was no less crucial in the transformation of the Chinese economic system and in burying Maoism, even though they didn't bury Mao. <clears throat> now, if in the case of Gorbachev, if a leader is defined as someone who helps a group to achieve its objectives, it depends, depends which group you have in mind. Gorbachev was a leader who was almost beyond the dreams of those who hoped that somebody would emerge at the top of the Soviet hierarchy who would introduce more, more freedoms and institute some democratization. But if he was <clears throat> a leader um, advancing the interests of the Politburo and the Central Committee and the party bureaucracy, then of course he did the opposite. He delegitimated them, he undermined their authority, and he paved the way for their removal from power. <clears throat> it was the Brezhnev era that was the golden age of the Soviet bureaucrat. Under Gorbachev, all the old certainties were cast to the winds. There were countless new freedoms, freedom of religion, freedom of travel, freedom of speech. 
competitive elections, and then, of course, his foreign policy speeches in 1988 when he said that the people of every country had the right to decide for themselves what kind of system they wished to live in, what kind of political and economic system. He said this applied both to socialist countries and to capitalist countries. Well, this was a green light for everything that happened in Eastern and Central Europe in 1989. So within five years of Gorbachev's acquiring the general secretaryship, the Soviet system was, in my view, no longer communist, and Gorbachev himself had evolved from being a communist reformer to becoming a socialist of a social democratic type. Yet that was all within the framework of a collective leadership. <clears throat> in those first five years, from March 1985 until March 1990, when he acquired a new post, an executive presidency, Gorbachev could have been replaced at a moment's notice by the Politburo and then that would have been endorsed by the Central Committee. So he had to govern by persuasion within the elite. He had to carry those people with him and get their collective responsibility for policies they never dreamt in the past they could ever have endorsed. So that required a lot of skill, the skill of tranquilizing the hardliners and postponing the coup attempt for so long that when it happened, it failed. <clears throat> so far from being a strong leader in the conventional sense, Gorbachev ended the automatic deference accorded to the General Secretary of the Soviet Communist Party, undermined the pillars on which his power rested, and maneuvered rather than coerced his intra-party opponents. The limits to his powers of persuasion were, however, dramatically illustrated by the breakup of the Soviet Union once national aspirations were aroused and it became clear that to demand national independence would no longer, as in the past, mean a one-way ticket to the gulag, uh, but now be tolerated. So Gorbachev is regarded today by most Russians as a weak leader. A weak leader, above all, because he didn't use force to prevent the disintegration of the Soviet Union. A weak leader also in his style of leadership. One of his supporters, um, Georgi Shakhnazarov, who was Gorbachev's aide and advisor on political reform, thinks that Gorbachev lost a lot of credibility with um, a majority of the population when he chaired the new legislature that had been formed in 1989, acting more or less as Speaker of the Parliament as well as being General Secretary. And in that capacity, he was criticised by lowly deputies people had never heard of, and he took insults in his stride. Now, Shakhnasarov said, you know, for many Russians who have in the past admired strong leaders, even cruel leaders, somebody who would take insults from a nobody in their stride was not somebody who could defend them. So Gorbachev did not fit the um, image of a strong leader of a great many Russians. Nevertheless, he was a transformational leader, in my view. Deng Xiaoping was just as important in the transformation of the Chinese economic system. And again, this was a collective leadership he operated within. Most unusually, he was not the party leader. He was neither the chairman of the party, as Mao had been, nor was he general secretary. But he was the, only, the most influential voice within the party leadership from the 1970s and throughout the 1980s. And under Deng Xiaoping's leadership, China moved from being a command economy to being an essentially market economy with two-thirds of industrial output produced by the private sector. 
This is a pr- pr- an economy, of course, in which the um, party and state officials often have a stake, though Deng himself didn't pursue personal enrichment any more than he pursued a personality cult. Serious argument went on within the party leadership during those years in which Deng was in the ascendancy and China became far more open to the world. Deng, however, took a very different view from democratization from what he took of marketization. The brutal crackdown in and around Tiananmen Square in 1989 had Deng Xiaoping's imprimatur. He embraced systemic change of the economy, but was determined to preserve the pillars of the political system. So I've already begun to cast doubt on the idea that the kind of leader we should admire is one who shows he is boss, who prefers prefers pulling rank to exercising persuasion. I'll make the argument further by looking briefly at three different types of regime in turn. First, authoritarian regimes. Second, regimes in transition from authoritarian rule. And third, established democracies. In authoritarian regimes, I would argue, and I hope that this is one of the less controversial points, a collective leadership is usually a lesser evil than the dictatorship of one man. Authoritarian regimes, by definition, place far more power in the hands of leaders than is possible in a democracy. There may be some checks from within the executive on what the top leader can do, but legislatures provide, um, at best, a facade Judges are subservient to the political leadership, and the mass media are censored and strictly controlled. It goes without saying that there is no accountability of the top leadership of an authoritarian or totalitarian system to the people as a whole. Yet even in these cases, it makes a difference whether authoritarian power is exercised collectively or individually. Authoritarian, as distinct from totalitarian systems, can be either autocracies or oligarchies. Some, in other words, are ruled by a single dictator, and others have a more collective leadership. The more collective it is, the more points of access there are for other privileged groups to lobby members of the top leadership team. The freer the deliberation and argument in a collective leadership, the less likely are the worst extremes of policy. Adam Smith, who was a wise observer of politics as well as political economy, Adam Smith noted that gross abuse of power, as well as perverseness, absurdity, and unreasonableness, were more liable to be found in the rule of single persons than of larger assemblies. While it would be foolish to deny, and Smith didn't do so, that groups are also capable of coming to stupid decisions or of sponsoring dreadful actions, Unconstrained personal rule is more dangerous. Compare China in the first half of the 1950s and especially from the late 1970s onwards with the years of Mao's complete ascendancy. The the first half of the 1950s were bloody enough, but nothing like as bad as the Great Leap Forward or the Cultural Revolution, taken together, they were responsible for the deaths of tens of millions of Chinese people. Uh, The more collective leadership after Mao's death was was and remains authoritarian, but has been such a vast improvement on Mao's rule and nothing comparable in the way of bloodshed. Or take the Soviet Union in the 1920s, 
of the Soviet Union after 1953, after Stalin's death, and compare it with the years of high Stalinism from the early 1930s to Stalin's death in 1953. So the years of personal dictatorship, of the unquestioning and unquestionable rule of one person was significantly worse than what came before or what followed. In Brezhnev's Soviet Union, you had to actually do something that you knew the authorities disapproved of in order to be arrested. In Stalin's time, you could be the subject of an anonymous denunciation or of the jealousy of a neighbour who fancied your apartment. Those things happened under Stalin. There was really a qualitative difference between living in the Soviet Union in 1977 compared with 1937, even though in the 1970s it was still highly authoritarian. A vital element of the myth of the strong individual leader in authoritarian and totalitarian regimes has been the cult of the, the leader's superior wisdom and absolute authority. And this leads to disastrous decisions. In the Soviet case, for example, it led to Stalin's rejecting, um, and therefore the entire Soviet army's ignoring, numerous warnings of an impending all-out Nazi-German invasion in June 1941. On the very eve of that invasion, Beria, the head of the secret police, said he would grind into labor party, labor party, labor camp, grind into labor camp dust anyone who questioned Stalin's view that there would be no German invasion in 1941. Hitler, however, made just as great a mistake when he launched that invasion of the Soviet Union. German generals were worried about fighting on two fronts, Western and Eastern, but the system was such that they had to swallow their doubts. And in the end, although it is too often forgotten in this country and forgotten even more in the United States, it was Soviet resistance to Hitler that was the most decisive element in the defeat of Nazi Germany in the ground war in Europe. <clears throat> what then of my second category, regimes in transition from authoritarianism to democracy, or if things take another turn, to a hybrid regime or to a different form of authoritarian rule. I would argue that the values, approach and governing style of the person who leads the transitional government are of exceptional importance in determining whether or not the country in question will become a consolidated democracy. An outstanding case in point was Adolfo Suarez, the Spanish Prime Minister from 1975 until 1981. Suarez died as recently as last month, having been largely forgotten for the last decade of his life because he was suffering from Alzheimer's. But he oversaw Spain's transition from dictatorship to democracy. There were very low expectations of Suarez because he'd been quite a high-level bureaucrat in the Franco regime, but he played a remarkable role. He persuaded the Cortes, the parliament which had been appointed, not elected under Franco to agree to its own dissolution. He went to prison to speak to um, Santiago Carrillo, the Communist Party leader, and persuaded him to accept um, a constitutional monarchy. And the Republicans had fought a civil war against the, the, the very idea of monarchy. Um, he, with greater difficulty, persuaded the Socialist Party and its leader, um, Felipe González, to accept a constitutional monarchy and the new constitution. 
Uh, he had to make big concessions to Gonzales, reducing the voting age to 18 and agreeing to the abolition of the death penalty. But he was ready to be inclusive, he was ready to make concessions. And the new constitution was approved practically unanimously by the new by the parliament and by 90% of the population in a referendum. The main exception was the Basque country, but Suarez also saw significant, oversaw significant concessions to national feelings there and in Catalonia, and Spain established an asymmetrical devolution that has survived to the present day. The monarchy came in useful in 1981 when there was a serious attempt at a military coup and uh, the king uh, Juan Carlos appeared on television in the uniform of Captain General, Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces, and told the rebellious officers to get back to their barracks. They might not have accepted um, this uh, from um, a democratic politician, they accepted it from the king, so he came in handy. So Spain is really an outstanding example of negotiated transition to democracy in which the sensitive and inclusive leadership of Suarez played a decisive role. Or take the case of Nelson Mandela. After 27 years of imprisonment, he showed almost superhuman magnanimity in the way he came to terms with his jailers, his actual jailers, as well as their political masters. The changed international context was, of course, terribly important. Uh, both de Klerk and Mandela had reasons for coming to terms. De Klerk and the apartheid regime could no longer play the anti-communist card, which they'd played for so many years after the changes in the Soviet Union and after Eastern Europe had been allowed to become non-communist and independent. And the ANC, um, they, they, uh, in turn, could no longer rely on support for um, armed struggle against the regime because the new Moscow policy was uh, against armed struggle. So they bo both sides had incentives to come together. Once it was agreed to move to one person, one vote, it was pretty well a foregone conclusion that the ANC were going to win the election and Mandela would become president. But he proceeded to <coughs> govern in a collegial way and once again, he set a good example by stepping down after only one term as president in a continent in which there are too many presidents for life. Apartheid would have ended sometime, but without Mandela, it's unlikely to have ended so relatively peacefully, and the majority rule would have been as calmly accepted by the white minority who had lost political power. So some leaders can very obviously make a decisive difference for better or worse. It's instructive to compare the successful Spanish transition to democracy with what has happened in Russia. <clears throat> the breakthrough to political pluralism was made by Gorbachev, who liberalized and partially democratized the system. In the last years of the Soviet Union, Boris Yeltsin won domestic and increasing international support by presenting himself as a more radical democrat than Gorbachev. But once he was installed in the Kremlin, Yeltsin's winner-takes-all approach to politics and to power was in stark contrast with the approach of Suarez. Quite apart from anointing a former um, lieutenant colonel in the KGB as his chosen successor, this is one reason why democratic institution building has fared so poorly in post-Soviet Russia compared with post-Franco Spain. 
The former Soviet Union offers a fairly bleak picture, albeit less bleak than the contemporary Middle East. Among the 15 successor states to the Soviet Union, there are a few democracies, most notably Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania, but a majority of the countries are either unambiguously authoritarian or, as in the case of the most important of them, Russia, hybrid regimes which have become increasingly intolerant of political opposition and of media dissent over the past two decades. The first president of the Russian Federation, Boris Yeltsin, notwithstanding his championing of democracy in the last years of the Soviet Union, did more harm than good to that cause during his years in the Kremlin. The creeping authoritarianism in post-Soviet Russia began under Yeltsin and has been taken further by Putin. Yeltsin used tanks and shells to quell a rebellious legislature in 1993, and he was ready to cancel the 1996 presidential election at a time when the opinion polls suggested he would certainly lose. He was persuaded by the oligarchs, the people who had been appointed billionaires uh, under his presidency, that if they put enough money behind him, he could win that election, and on that basis he allowed it to go ahead. Yeltsin had no interest in democratic institution building, although, to be fair, he was more tolerant of criticism within the wider society than Putin has been. Yeltsin's chosen successor, Vladimir Putin, is still more obviously nostalgic for the authoritarian Soviet past. The Soviet legislature is now almost... Sorry, the Russian legislature... But we all Soviet politicians <laughs> continue to make this Freudian slip. The Russian legislature... Uh, is still um, is now almost as obedient as the old unreformed Supreme Soviet, and state-controlled television gives no airtime to critics of the president, according him and his loyal acolytes an extended platform to extol the Kremlin's achievements in a manner that is more than a little reminiscent of the pre-Perestroika Soviet Union. If a country is to make a successful transition to democracy, this involves much more than taking measures that may be domestically popular at the time, as, for example, Russia's annexation of the Crimean Peninsula, which has raised still higher Putin's already buoyant um, approval ratings. It means embedding democratic institutions, encouraging rather than stifling party competition, and adhering to a rule of law administered by an independent judiciary. A recent comparative historical study by Scott Mainwaring and Anibal Perez-Linan, Democracies and Dictatorships in Latin America, underlines the importance for democratization of the normative attitudes to dictatorship and democracy within the leadership group. In this large-scale study, which uses both qualitative and quantitative analysis, they conclude that in a regime in transition, I quote, if actors are normatively committed to democracy, they are willing to tolerate disappointing policy outcomes that might tip uncommitted actors to join the authoritarian coalition. The limitation of strength as the major criterion for assessing the quality of the leader becomes especially clear when we look not only at Russia and most of the other successor states to the Soviet Union, but also at the Middle East. In both parts of the world, we find a proliferation of overbearing leaders who have certainly been strong in the sense of getting their way and dominating the political landscape, but who have been massive obstacles 
to the building and maintenance of democratic institutions. When Hosni Mubarak, the strongman who led Egypt for three decades, was overthrown, there were high hopes that Egypt would become a democracy. The presidential election which followed the 2011 revolution offered a restricted choice which understandably was not to the liking of many who had risked life and limb demonstrating in the streets for the removal of Mubarak. The alternatives on offer were the candidate of the Muslim Brotherhood, Mohamed Morsi, and Mubarak's last Prime Minister, Ahmed Safiq. At least, though, the election was more or less free and fair and the votes were counted honestly. Morsi, however, used the narrow majority he obtained to push through partisan changes rather than to build consensus. A new constitution was adopted that was supported by only 32% of eligible voters. Morsi's winner-takes-all approach ended, as we know, with the forcible overthrow of his government and his own imprisonment by the current Egyptian regime. The present government was brought to power by a military coup, following, of course, mass protests against the Morsi government. The coup was supported by Tony Blair, as well as by a good many Egyptian liberals, support that the liberals, I think, are already coming to regret. Field Marshal Abdul Fattah al-Sisi has moved from being commander of the armed forces (coughs) to presidential candidate, and even before he attains that office, he is surrounded by a personality cult. The new military rulers have killed several hundred protesters and have banned the Brotherhood, which was Egypt's largest social movement. Their behaviour strongly suggests that they will be even less willing to build democracy than was Morsi. The false god of the strongman has once again prevailed over aspirations for democracy and social justice. Here, too, the contrast with the Spanish transition and the inclusive approach of Suarez could scarcely be greater. The strong, weak dichotomy is not the best measure of good leadership anywhere, and especially not in a country where people where there are people who aspire to be treated as citizens with rights that can be defended politically and legally, rather than as subjects at the mercy of arbitrary rule. Thus, a leader's integrity, his commitment to democratic norms, acceptance of limits on his powers, inclusiveness, tolerance and collegiality matter much more than strength if there is to be hope of consolidating democracy. So I turn third and finally to established democracies. Overwinning leaders within a consolidated democratic system can do less harm than those I've just been discussing. Yet there are serious disadvantages in the many personality cults of premiers and encouraging them to do too much themselves. Some heads of government don't need much encouragement to do so, and some more than others are intent on projecting an image of a strong leader. The idea of doing so never entered the head of a Stanley Baldwin or a Clement Attlee, but it was very much in the heads of Margaret Thatcher and of Tony Blair. (coughs) There are only 24 hours in the day of even the strongest leader. And so when policy decisions are delayed until the leader can pass judgment, that is an inefficient substitute for collective decision-making. A Prime Minister who has to devote substantial attention to international issues and to meet frequently with heads of government from other countries does not have the time to second-guess the decisions of Cabinet committees and would be unwise to do so. The more decisions heads of government try to take, 
the less time they have for focusing on each of them. What that means is that decisions are taken on the basis of inadequate knowledge, and in their excellent recent book, um, Anthony King and Ivor Crewe give many very telling examples, their book, The Blunders of Our Government. Or the decisions are taken de facto by the leader's entourage, non-elected placemen and placewomen. Yet opposition parties and the mass media are constantly urging prime ministers and party leaders to do this, that and the other thing, <coughs> thus fostering the illusion that the leader is entitled to have the last word on everything. It seems to be the case <coughs> that the leader most admired is one of unshakable convictions able to dominate his or her political party, the cabinet and the policy process. A view I find distinctly odd, especially in a democracy, where that dominance is normatively undesirable and in everyday reality is seldom achieved, whatever the leader's pretensions. In the year 2000, <coughs> Tony Blair, as Prime Minister, said, I will decide the issue of monetary union. But he was unable to do so. Treasury ministers are important in any government in any country, and Gordon Brown as Chancellor was more powerful than most. When Blair tried to promote <coughs> British membership <coughs> of the European common currency, and for that purpose, as Alistair Darling has written, involved the cabinet in the process more than usual, Brown saw him off and kept Britain out of the euro. Some of Gordon Brown's own projects, notably the public-private partnerships, would have benefited from more critical collective scrutiny, a point that also emerges in the King and Crew book. <coughs> Chancellors of the Exchequer get only a small fraction of the attention devoted to Prime Ministers, much less, in fact, than their powers and role merit. I did a round of interviews of past and present Cabinet Ministers as long ago as the mid-1960s, which <coughs> gives a clue to my age. Um, one of the most interesting sessions was with, was with Rab Butler, who said that when he was Chancellor between 1951 and 1955, Churchill did not interfere at all. Even when the budget was approaching, Churchill expressed only the most general sentiments, um, saying, for example, I hope you're not going to forget the poor, <laughs> or I hope it's not just going to be more dividends for the rich. The butler's view of Churchill was characteristically ambivalent. This conversation was um, off the record in his lifetime. Um, but in that same conversation he said of Churchill, of course he was a great leader. He was a great lion. I am a mouse in comparison. And he was absolutely straight. But he could be extraordinarily stupid. <laughs> he knew practically nothing about economic policy. He scarcely understood the meaning of inflation, but he was very tender-hearted. <laughs> <clears throat> well, lastly, a word on leaders and foreign policy. Politicians who like to think of themselves as strong leaders or who, who are anxious to be perceived to be strong, may be especially tempted by foreign adventures. The two most counterproductive foreign policy decisions since the Second World War by British Prime Ministers, and they were above all decisions of the Prime Minister, were the invasion of Suez in 1956 and collusion with France and Israel, and the invasion of Iraq in, 19, in 2003, when Tony Blair was the junior partner of George W. Bush's United States. Now, if we take Eden and the Suez adventure, Eden had a lot of experience of foreign policy, but he, 
ignored all the Middle Eastern specialists in the Foreign Office. He ignored all the ambassadors to Middle Eastern countries. He disregarded, above all, and this was his undoing, the warnings of President Eisenhower. In a letter at the time to an old army friend, the American president wrote, I don't see the point in getting into a fight to which there can be no satisfactory end, and in which the whole world believes you're playing the part of a bully, and you don't, do not even have the firm backing of your entire people. So the fiasco of the invasion of Egypt was brought to an abrupt end when it became absolutely clear the United States would not back the pound. Harold Macmillan was Chancellor of the Exchequer at that time, and the pound sterling was still a reserve currency, and there was a tremendous flight in the pound. Almost the entire world and the United Nations, um, Soviet Union, was against the Suez invasion, but crucially the opposition from the United States was what ended it. Macmillan had a telephone conversation with the Secretary of the Treasury, George Humphrey, um, in which Humphrey said to him, you'll not get a dime from the US government until you've gotten out of Suez. Millen said, that's a frosty message you've got for me, George. Well, for the sake of privacy, Humphrey had retreated into a refrigerated domestic meat safe to make the call. And he said, well, it's a very frosty place I'm calling from. <laughs> but Eden, not Macmillan, Eden had been the prime mover in the invasion of Egypt, and he was partly motivated by the desire to appear strong. Eden had been constantly criticised as a ditherer and weak, and he was desperate to show that he was not indecisive, he could be a strong leader. He was against the withdrawal from Egypt in the cabinet, but a majority of the cabinet bowed to the inevitable in the face of the opposition from the rest of the world, and most decisively from the United States. Now what about Tony Blair and the invasion of Iraq? Again, the foreign policy specialists in, in the on the Middle East and the Foreign Office were against it, the ambassadors in the region were against it. Baroness Manningham Buller, the head of MI5, said this would not decrease terrorism, it would greatly increase the threat of terror. Blair did hold a meeting with some specialists on the Middle East, including Charles Tripp from SOAS, a good, very good specialist on Iraq. And as Tripp later wrote, Blair didn't seem to be interested in Iraq as a complicated political society. He just wanted to be reassured that removing Saddam would be removing evil. Blair referred to critics of his policy within his entourage as the anti-Americans. Well, the anti-Americans included the present President of the United States, former President of the United States Jimmy Carter, former National Security Advisor to Carter, Zbigniew Brzezinski, and the present Secretary of State John Kerry. I remember a British ambassador and a fluent Arabic speaker, Sir James Craig, saying to me in 2002, um, at a time when, of course, the invasion had not taken place, but it was clear it was going to, he said, it'll be a disaster. They've got no idea what they're getting into. Iraq is a terribly, terribly complicated country, and they're not listening to us. The desire to be a strong leader, as well as to be close to the American president, whichever president that happened to be, were significant factors in Tony Blair's enthusiastic commitment of British lives and resources to the invasion of Iraq. As early as 1997, in Blair's first year as Prime Minister, a journalist who's followed Blair's career closely and very sympathetically, Andrew Ronsley, wrote, Mr Blair has many strengths. Among his greatest weaknesses is an obsession with not, appearing, with not looking weak. <coughs> And that, incidentally, was the cause of Saddam Hussein's downfall. The weapons of mass destruction had been destroyed some years earlier in Iraq, 
But Saddam had made things difficult for the UN inspectors, leaving some ambiguity, because, as he subsequently told his American captors, and in this case we've no reason to disbelieve him, he did not want to appear weak, especially in the eyes of Iran. And no one in the Iraq regime could, of course, tell Saddam he was making a terrible mistake. In a democracy, it should be a more straightforward matter than it appears to have become for cabinet ministers to tell prime ministers that they will not be allowed to pursue a favoured policy. Dennis Healy, a few years ago, in an interesting interview, mentioned that while Harold Wilson gets a lot of credit, rightly, for keeping Britain out of the Vietnam War, when he was under a lot of pressure from Lyndon Johnson and from Washington generally to send some British forces to Vietnam, Healy said Wilson was tempted. Now, Healy was Secretary of State for Defence throughout that um, Wilson Prime Ministership Labour government of the 1960s. Healy said Wilson was tempted, and I said absolutely not. Well, could one imagine Jeff Hoon saying absolutely not to Tony Blair? There was a difference between a Healy and a Hoon, I'm afraid, and it's become less common for ministers to stand up to prime ministers. Robin Cook, of course, did resign and, rather belatedly, was followed by Claire Short. Neither George Bush nor Tony Blair had the faintest idea of what they were letting their countries in for, and they failed to listen to those who did. Yet Blair believed, and apparently still believes, that he was personally entitled to decide whether or not Britain would go to war. He writes in his memoirs that even when people disagreed with Britain's participation in the invasion of Iraq, they, and I quote, sympathised with the fact that the leader had to take the decision. Well, we've come a long way from Clement Attlee, as Deputy Premier in the wartime coalition government, writing to Winston Churchill in 1945 to complain that the Prime Minister was paying too much attention to two ministers who were not members of the Cabinet. They happened to be Churchill's personal cronies, um, Lord Beaverbrook and Brendan Bracken, although Attlee didn't mention that. Attlee focused on what he said was, I quote, a serious constitutional issue, namely that in the eyes of the country and under our constitution, the eight members of the War Cabinet take responsibility for decisions. Now, Churchill, nevertheless, and it's worth adding, was a great believer himself in bringing things to the Cabinet uh, on all major issues. Uh, he, he said once that if a minister has got anything on his mind and he has got the sense to get it argued by the cabinet, he will have the machine behind him. Foreign policy should not be the province of one leader, helped by his or her loyal advisers. Undoubtedly, such developments as the dramatic increase in the speed of transport and speed of communications have led to more direct interaction between premiers and presidents, requiring them to speak on behalf of their countries. But that makes it more and not less important that the policies they put forward in those meetings should have been worked out by the government collectively, by politicians of independent standing with appropriate departmental responsibilities. One good thing the present coalition government has done was to create in 2010 a National Security Council because the old Defence and Overseas Committee of the Cabinet fell into desuetude under Blair. There used to be ad hoc meetings of people that he wanted to see rather than a properly constituted Cabinet Committee on Foreign Policy. So my final word is this. Far from thinking that strong leaders are great, we should be extremely wary of them, especially the self-consciously strong leaders. 
Leaders who believe that they've got a personal right to dominate decision-making in many areas of policy and to attempt to exercise such a prerogative do a disservice both to good governance and to democracy. They deserve not followers but critics. Prime ministers and party, and party leaders, unless they're as well-grounded as a Baldwin or an Attlee, acquire an unrealistic belief in the exceptional quality of their judgment and corresponding right to pull rank and determine policy. Sustained as such convictions are by the flattery and hopes of preferment of some of those around them. It's not altogether surprising that leaders should fall prey to arrogance and to seeing themselves as somehow above the party which elevated them to its leadership. What is more astonishing is that so many of the rest of us should fall for that narrative of heroic individual leadership. Thank you. Archie, thank you very much. Um, uh, Professor Brown is happy to answer questions. We have some microphones, so can you wait until it reaches you after I've recognised you to ask a question? The first one is right here. Uh, thank you. I, I greatly enjoyed this. Thank you very much. Um, it's like a bit like a blast from the past, I, I thought. It was interesting. It was a very different... It felt like a different generation of political thinking. Um, two questions... If I think transformational leaders, the person in the UK that really comes to mind, I can't help it, is Margaret Thatcher. She also was called the Iron Lady, so some, most people would think she was a strong leader. Uh, she kind of was curiously absent from your talk. I mean, she, you mentioned in her government as a reformist government, but not as a transformational one. And again, I would sort of challenge you on that. I think if there was a transformational government, it was Thatcher's government who transformed uh, the economy, not necessarily for the better. Um, so, so that's but you, you, interesting, your views. The second one, um, when it comes to weak leadership, um, do you think that will help Ed Miliband win the next election? I'll um, answer the second question first. I think that um, an important point is one which I elaborate with a lot of evidence in my book, is that leaders are not nearly as important to electoral outcomes as most people assume they are. Um, the one study suggested there have been only two elections since the Second World War in Britain where the personality of the leader made a difference, and that was Harold Wilson in October 1964 when he had a massive lead over Sir Alec Douglas Hume, and yet you know, the parties were very close to each other in that election. And the other time was in February 1974 when Wilson again had a very large lead over Ted Heath and Labour scarcely had a majority at all. Um, so, um, you know, so another of Tony Blair's proud boss is that I won three elections. He's always telling us that. But in fact, any <coughs> uh, Labour leader was going to win um, those elections. Um, so, and this, this is true across the board, other countries as well. I mean, the Australian Communist Party, Communist Party, another old sociological um, <coughs> Freudian um, slip. The Australian Labour Party. Um, uh, replaced Julia Rudd and uh, Julia Gillard um, by Kevin Rudd and very very briefly um, the Labour Party surged ahead of their Liberal opponents but in the end of course just a very few months later 
uh, they were comprehensively defeated in the election. So the politicians themselves buy into the idea that changing the leader will make all the difference, but it rarely does. Um, uh, apart from that, I would say that um, uh, Ed Miliband doesn't seem to me to be as bad as you were perhaps suggesting. Um, the, and Mrs. Thatcher, uh, I do discuss her in the book as a redefining leader. Um, clearly, it was a redefining government that uh, the nationalizations of the post-war Labour government uh, <coughs> stayed in place apart from Iron and Steel, which was uh, denationalized by the Churchill government until the 1980s. Uh, and so this um, move to privatization, um, she had colleagues who fully approved of it, but you know, she was the driving force, no question. So she was a strong leader. Um, but two points. One is that in foreign policy, she um, wasn't so much the Iron Lady as people imagine. Uh, of all conservative leaders throughout the world, she was the most pro-Gorbachev. Um, she met him, as we know, three months before he became Soviet leader and famously announced that, uh, I like Mr. Gorbachev, we can do business together. And she helped to persuade um, Reagan that he, he was a different kind of Soviet leader and was very much in favor of dialogue with him. Indeed, her foreign policy advisor, Sir Percy Craddock, uh, complains in, in a book he wrote uh, about um, her becoming um, infatuated by Gorbachev and said that she acted as an agent of influence in both directions, uh, of Reagan to Gorbachev and Gorbachev to Reagan. Uh, so this doesn't really fit with her Iron um, Lady image. She also is opposed to one or two of the uh, American uh, unilateral military actions, um, especially the um, invasion of Grenada. Um, but um, there was an aspect of her strong leader which was her undoing. Um, one, she was certainly a politician of conviction, but one of her convictions was that she was right on everything. <laughs> and uh, in due course, the cabinet decided they would no longer put up with that. She lost the support of a sufficient a large minority of her parliamentary party uh, endorsed by the cabinet that she was turned out of Downing Street before she thought her time was up. And, and if you look at the prime ministers in the 20th century in Britain who've been replaced not in the usual way by the electorate, but by their own side in the House of Commons, it was, tends to be these overweening leaders, Lloyd George, Neville Chamberlain, um, Margaret Thatcher, Tony Blair, replaced by their own side because they, they lost support. So. Um, treating your colleagues collegially can be prudent, I think, for a Prime Minister. Question about, hang on, question about Ed Miliband. Uh, I thought I started with the Ed Miliband Sorry, one. Sorry, I missed it, fine. Um, pr professor, thank you very much for sharing your insights. Um, a, a major question and a corollary, if I may. The first is, how would you, I mean, thanks for explaining what you, consider strong leadership and weak leadership, but what is successful uh, as, as a political leader? How do you define that? Can there be success? Uh, is it a combination of politics and economics, domestics and uh, external and so on? And, and secondly, is their leadership distinct from what the media tell us what it is? Thank you. Second question. Can you repeat your second question, please? Um, our understanding of political leadership, is there a leadership um, quality which is distinct from what we understand it to be, given what the media tell us? I think in general, is this working? No. Yes. In, in general, I think leadership is overrated. Um, that um, uh, you know, the cult of a leader goes too far and most 
courses on leadership, I think, um, don't do much good at all. Um, and, um, and, and yet some leaders make an enormous difference. So the people I call transformational leaders, the people who introduce systemic change, um, uh, I would say that was very much successful leadership. I do have an evaluative um, content in that. Um, I am taking transformational leadership to mean lead leadership that is for the better. Um, I mean, the word transformation, when we use it, we normally mean an improvement. Um, I've got a separate chapter on revolutionary leaders because so often the revolution replaces one kind of authoritarian system by another authoritarian system. But um, de Gaulle, um, Gorbachev, Mandela, um, these were remarkably successful leaders. And of course, many people in Russia today would say, no, Gorbachev is an appalling leader because he destroyed our country. So a lot depends on your values. Does it matter more that he introduced a whole lot of freedoms and democracy, uh, but failed to preserve the integrity of the existing state? So that, that's, that's a matter of values. Um, but I think that leaders can be effective in quieter times. Um, not every country needs systemic transformation, simply improvement. Um, and um, Atlee, as I mentioned, seemed to me to be a, a successful leader. Um, Asquith was a successful leader. Um, there are many examples. Um, in the United States, well, um, the, the prime examples of redefining leaders, as I mentioned briefly, were Franklin Roosevelt. I mean, the New Deal was a dramatic breakthrough. Lyndon Johnson achieved more in terms of civil rights and reducing poverty than any other American president. Uh, American inequality uh, is greater than that of any other democracy in the world, but it reached its lowest point in the late 1960s when um, Johnson's policies began to have some effect, and it's increased greatly since then. Um, he got legislation through Congress that Kennedy had no hope of getting through. So, of course, if, we, um, when, if one looks at the whole picture, Vietnam was a terrible mistake. Um, de Gaulle warned American presidents it would be a mistake on the basis of French experience. He said it will end in failure, which it did. 55,000 Americans killed and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese. Um, and the country was united as a communist state, so an utter failure. Uh, and yet, domestically, he achieved a great deal. So sometimes, you know, the balance sheet, you've got to um, weigh tremendous failures against remarkable successes. It's not always... It would be very rare, I think, to find somebody who had been wholly successful. Um, but on leadership qualities, um, I, you know, I do have a kind of checklist of qualities which one would hope to find a leader, which would include um, listening to a variety of views, um, collegiality, um, integrity, intelligence, good memory helps, um, if you're lucky, vision. Um, but um, you know, not every leader has all of these qualities and um, they should never forget it, though I wouldn't add modesty to the list, that would be asking too much. <laughs> yeah, um, a couple of, couple of points. I really enjoyed the, uh, the, the discussion, very stimulating. Um, I guess one point is, um, one, one theme in your talk is the, the relationship between individual modes of operation and more collective modes of operation. And it just seems to me there's a strong argument that that's part of a much broader shift socially than just in the political sphere. Um, and I wonder if that should make us um, 
um, not very optimistic about immediate change. You know, the shift towards individualism from collectivism is a much broader cultural shift. So uh, I just wondered if you, if you um, recognise that context. We think that's right. The second point is there is at least an argument that the strong leadership of um, Ronald Reagan, you could argue, transformed the Soviet Union more than the collective leadership style of Mikhail Gorbachev. I don't know if that is a counter, uh, counterpoint to what you've said. And the third point is somebody who works in much smaller scale institution than, than a nation. Um, I wonder if you've got any thoughts about the applicability of what you've said at national political level to leadership at other levels in society or in organisations. Uh, thank you very much. Um, the, the first question was on the leaders and the media. Yes, the, um, I think that uh, I've read all Alistair Campbell's diaries and um, uh, so many memoirs, and it seems to me remarkable the amount of time that um, prime ministers uh, and I spent thinking about um, the media rather than about policy. Um, you know, again, if you contrast that with the book by Anthony King and Ivor Crewe and the blunders of our governments, we find so many policies, not just of that government, I mean, they're pretty even-handed in talking about blunders of different governments, but terrible mistakes, costly mistakes, um, through terrible inefficiency. And yet, when you look at the amount of time they spent worrying about what the headlines are going to be in the Daily Mail the next day, um, you, you, one can't help but think that they should have spent more time uh, on the policy and in, in, in committee meetings on, on the policy and consulting the, the specialists more than they did. Uh, so um, I don't suppose one could be a Prime Minister of the Attlee style now, you know, when he was asked if he had anything to say to the people, he said no, um, uh, and when somebody thrust a microphone in his face, um, <laughs> now you'd have to come up with something. Um, but um, I don't think they need to be quite as obsessed uh, with the media as they, as they have been. Um, the Reagan and uh, the change in the Soviet Union. Well, Reagan, I think we should remember, coincided with four leaders of the Soviet Union. Brezhnev, Andropov, Chernyanka, and Gorbachev. And absolutely nothing changed for the better until Gorbachev came along. Indeed, we came closer in 1983 to war than we had been since 1962 in the Cuban Missile Crisis. A NATO exercise had to be altered so that it would become clear to the Russians that this was just an exercise and wasn't going to be a, an attempt to launch um, a nuclear attack, you know, a surprise attack. Um, the Cold War got a lot colder in '93. It was extremely dangerous. Um, so um, I would say that uh, it was Gorbachev who was absolutely the decisive and prime mover in changing the international climate, and Reagan was responsive to this. I think it's also important that George Shultz um, succeeded Alexander Craig as Secretary of State, um, the Schultz was a very important player and it was important that on the Soviet Union Reagan came to prefer the judgment of Schultz to that of Weinberger there were lots of other arguments going on in Washington Washington's always divided on big policy issues and the uh, Defense Department and State Department were very far from seeing eye to eye and the CIA were much closer to the um, Defense Department but basically Reagan put Soviet policy in the hands of George Shultz. He in turn was, accept, was helped by an excellent ambassador to Moscow, Jack Matlock, who was there from 1987 to 91. So I think you know, Reagan's policy that succeeded was not the hard line Reagan, it was much more Reagan who was prepared to um, 
uh, was looking for dialogue with a Soviet leader who was prepared to talk sense to him. So I think I would disagree with the premise of that question. Uh, on leadership more generally, yes, I think that um, uh, there are some uh, lessons to be learned. I think that a more collegial leadership um, works in academic institutions as well, and uh, some institutions have become more hierarchical than they used to be. This is unnecessary. Um, I've worked in a fairly hierarchical institution in Glasgow University where professors had enormous power, and in Oxford where professors have got no power, um, and uh, I think I prefer the ones in which they've got no power. Um, yeah. A couple of reflections and one, well, possibly two questions. Um, would you agree that Atlee is an example of someone that was successful both domestically and international, given... Sorry, I'm just over here. I can't hear. Can you, can you talk up? Oh, shall I speak up? Yes. Oh, right. Sorry, OK. Um, so uh, two, uh, two reflections and, and one question. Um, the first is, would you agree that Atlee was an example of a Prime Minister that was successful both domestically and internationally, given his record in, in Greece and India and Palestine, if judging it from the perspective of, of British interests, at least. Um, the second is, I, I, well, I read history here several years ago um, and reviewed a lot of the Cabinet papers that Atlee reviewed and that Mrs Thatcher reviewed, and I was struck by, by their, both of their abilities to grasp detail and to challenge the, um, the decisions that ministers beneath them had taken. Um, and I, I would argue that's a very strong characteristic of a, of a successful leader or good prime minister. Um, and finally, I've, I've worked for, for several chairmen of, uh, of large uh, FTSE 100 companies, and I'm increasingly amazed at the, the lack of people and senior managers that can actually make a decision um, and justify it. Um, and I'm, the, the older I get, the more that seems to strike me as being the quality of a leader. Would you agree? I didn't hear all the questions very well. The first one was on the Middle East. Well, it's, it's whether Attlee is an example of a Prime Minister that was successful both domestically and internationally, given his, his record in... If, you, if, you're, if the gauge is British interests, his record in Greece, uh, in Palestine and in India. Um, well, um, Ernest Bevan was essentially running foreign policy. I mean, one of the points about the Attlee government was that... Um, departmental ministers were firmly in charge. I mean, the cabinet certainly accepted collective responsibility, but um, for better or worse, this was essentially um, uh, Bevan's policy. There are some people who say that um, the foreign office put Bevan in their pocket, but I've spoken to people who worked there um, under Bevan, and he said he put them in their pocket. I mean, he was um, a formidable personality leader. He was Churchill's favourite Labour Minister in the wartime coalition as Minister of Labour, and he was a formidable Foreign Secretary. Um, it may be that, you know, there was no good outcome in, in Middle East policy, Palestine, um, at, at that time, um, and uh, it's not been resolved since. Um, but um, I, I wouldn't blame Atlee for it, particularly to the extent that it didn't succeed. Um, the, the second question... Uh, it was on whether uh, the capacity to make a decision is the mark of a successful leader, given that the ability to make a decision is, is not terribly common, in my experience. Uh, um, is a sign of leadership the ability to make a decision? Oh. Uh, well, um, you know, 
Blair makes a great virtue of this, that um, you know, deciding and deciding quickly. Um, again, I refer to the book by King and Crew. I'm plugging that book more on my own. Um, they, uh, I mean, they say there are very few decisions that need to be taken as quickly as politicians sometimes think, think or as secretly, that there can be much more public discuss discussion of many decisions than there is. And so also the very bad decisions that cost the taxpayer hundreds of millions in some cases um, were made too quickly and uh, with insufficient um, uh, <clears throat> evidence from a, a wider com policy community. Um, so um, I think there's a great deal to be said for um, cabinet committees um, that um, you know, even within an Oxford college you, you can see this. That I remember one case where a former head of my college agreed something with the head of another institution and spoke to most of the members of the governing body individually and they hadn't thought much about it so they agreed with him, went along with him. So he assured the head of this other institution this was going to happen. They came to the governing body and there were one or two people, um, one in particular, who had thought about the issue and put the counter-arguments so persuasively that the governing body um, was sw swung around completely and the warden was left high and dry and uh, was furious because he had to persuade this that it would go back to the person he'd told this is a <coughs> no, no, no question it would go through and it didn't go through. So this I think applies to cabinets and cabinet committees as well that a prime minister can speak to people individually and then take a decision <coughs> but you know most of them will be in a one-to-one -one conversation will be inclined to defer to the prime minister and if you get in a meeting with somebody who's got counter-arguments, um, then the, the, the outcome can be very different. But they've got to have enough backbone to stand up to the Prime Minister. And that does take a certain amount of courage, because this is the person who's got some control over your career. Um, to give them more courage, I would point out to them that many people who become Prime Minister have been rebels in their party at various times. Churchill was, Eden was, um, Harold Wilson was, Macmillan was. So um, being a careerist and conformist is not always the path to the top. Um, the final question? Oh, no, that's it. Thank you very much for bringing the presentation. I've got a quick, when I was at school in Switzerland, I did a project with my history master, who's still around, on Joseph Stalin, the assistant of the Soviet embassy in Rome. But Stalin, well, um, the, the book that hasn't been written up, Peter Gale wrote, Napoleon for and against. But I've got a question. Uh, Russia was essential to win the Second World War. Did you, do you think Russia won the war because of Stalin or despite him? Well, um, I think rather more despite than because of. Um, I mean, the Russian losses were immeasurably greater than they would have been uh, without Stalin. I mean, Stalin, uh, the losses, of course, in the first weeks of the war were enormous because they weren't prepared for the uh, invasion. Um, and then Stalin refused generals' permission to retreat from hopeless positions, again causing enormous losses. I mean, the losses of the Soviet side were several times greater than that on the German side, and yet the Soviet side won. So um, I think that, um, you know, Marshal Zhukov, um, cruel man though he was, was much more important to the Soviet victory than, than Stalin. Second row. Do you think there's a case for regarding Harold Macmillan as a transformative prime minister? Uh, he presided over the dissolution of the British Empire 
in a way that many people scarcely noticed and remarkably peacefully compared with the traumas that France went through. <clears throat> well, um, I think that the Macmillan government did do a number of significant things. Um, I think that the Wilson government did too. I mean, most governments make a difference. Um, I mean, transformational, I'm talking about systemic change, redefining, also very, very fundamental change. Um, but you could say that um, Macmillan <coughs> was pursuing a policy that was not so very different from that of the Labour Party, the Liberal Party at that time, so there was a cross-party consensus in that, so it wasn't so difficult. His difficulty was, of course, with his own backbenchers, and with the League of Empire Loyalists and people like that. <coughs> I think that... Um, and Macmillan was important, Ian MacLeod was important, but Macmillan was important and he appointed him as colonial secretary. Um, but to take another example, Harold Wilson, the government led by Wilson, there were some tremendously important changes made by that government, but most of them were not primarily Wilson's doing. Um, if you look at some of them, the, um, the uh, abolishing the... Um, <coughs> homosexuality is a crime, um, bringing... Um, the law for men into line with that for women, um, abolishing censorship in the theatre, um, the whole the whole raft of capital personal freedoms, abolishing capital punishment, whole raft of freedoms which were introduced by other people, Sidney Silverman as a backbencher, uh, but Roy Jenkins as Home Secretary was the prime mover in many of these. Uh, Wilson himself was socially rather conservative, and, uh, so, and he was surprised that Jenkins wanted that job. Um, and, and yet we tend to identify policies of a government with the Prime Minister, so Wilson doing this, that or the other, Cameron doing this, that or the other, and it's often, it's often wrong. Right, yeah. Should we be worried about Vladimir Putin? And in that context, can you give a couple of observations about the leadership qualities of, on the one hand, Angela Merkel, and on the other hand, Barack Obama? <clears throat> I think so. The, uh, <clears throat> I think that um, Russia has tended to favour a personalisation of power, um, or maybe favours the wrong word, very often people have had no option, but in the post-Soviet period they have had an option to a certain extent, and there has been a greater personalisation of power. And personalisation, not just the power of the presidency, because when Medvedev for four years um, was president and um, Putin was prime minister, Putin was still calling the shots. He was still the senior partner, he was the patron and Medvedev was the client. Um, so this personalization of power, I think, is inherently dangerous. Um, but I think it's a complicated question because we need to go further back and some of Russia's actions are a consequence of policy, the policy of the West in the 1990s. Um, you know, if, for example, we imagine that the Warsaw Pact had not been abolished and for the sake of argument, Mexico and uh, Canada had decided to join the Warsaw Pact, we can imagine the <coughs> reaction in Washington. Um, so the expansion of NATO into the former Soviet Union has affected the whole Russian political elite and Russian political opinion more broadly, not just Putin. Uh, so, um, I mean, George Kennan, people like to quote Kennan um, uh, on his um, long telegram and uh, <coughs> warning that it was necessary to stand up to the Soviet Union in the end, you know, that um, if you were... Uh, uh, strong view, not just uh, militarily, but um, um, ideologically, ideationally, you would win in the end. But people like the Kennan of uh, 1949, but they 
forget that Ken in the 1990s said that um, policy of expansion of NATO will lead to Russia feeling besieged, Russia becoming more nationalist, more aggressive. And so Putin at the moment represents that. So it's not just Putin, that's part of the background. But I agree that um, Putin is a far from optimal Russian leader and uh, the, <clears throat> it is worrying. I think he's becoming overconfident and that Russia will suffer from this, but so will Ukraine, so will the rest of us. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, this effect is, uh, I'm the business visitors from China. You know, I'm interested, you know, that you mentioned, uh, you know, the China about the leaders, the Mr. Chen, for four times. You know, the, I'm born in the 1981. I think that, you know, that I um, experienced, uh, you know, the, a lot of things, you know, that you mentioned after the transformation. Uh, my question is about the, your uh, topic is about the strong leaders. Uh, do you think that one countries need the strong leaders or, need, or maybe they need the strong systems? Because, you know, the, I talk with the, this topic with my friends in America. Uh, you know, the, they, after the, you know, the Obama, you know, to be the president, they are all the rep Republican. They talk about with me about some, something about uh, they worry about the system because you know the a lot of things you know the, after the uh, you know the for example Obamacare's they are will be take uh, take off the there are a lot of things about uh, democracy so so they worry about the you know the, maybe if the one very powerful leaders to be a president and that means uh, not only the something about the. Uh, democracy is a lot of things is the powerful decision maker is not the people's maker uh, if people's you know you know decision maker it's about the one person or the tiny group of the people to make the decision so that very worry about it so my questions are about related the, the topic that you mentioned the strong leaders so uh, do you think you know that uh, between the you know the times you know the strong leaders lead the country do you think about the, what's the feeling about from the people? I mean, the, maybe the strong leaders this age is sometimes, you know, you will be find a lot of weaker of their peoples. Yeah, something like that. You know, the, uh, the yeah, questions... I think that we get it. Do, do people want... Do, do the people want a strong leader? <clears throat> you know, people think often think they do want a, a strong leader, and in some countries there's more of a tradition of that than in others. I mean, you could say in the United States, um, the whole system is set up to avoid um, over mighty, overweening leaders. Um, it's very difficult for any president to dominate the whole policy process, given the um, separation of powers and, uh, uh, and all the, the veto points within the system. Um, but in Russia, certainly, there is a very strong tradition of people looking up to a strong leader and wanting a strong leader. Um, in this country, people often say they want a strong leader. Um, and uh, uh, you know, when I was writing this book, I just um, came across a headline, Financial Times, well, everyone agrees that Japan needs a strong leader. And so the, there is a, a lot of lip service paid, and maybe more than lip service, to the idea of the strong leader. Uh, so there is some popular support for it. Um, well, I'm trying to argue that we should be more skeptical about such strong leaders. Um, 
And especially in a democracy, um, the idea that one person knows best and that one person can take the decisions and there should not be countervailing arguments put and there should not be more collective leader <coughs> leadership uh, seems to me um, absurd. Um, <clears throat> but I don't deny there is a certain amount of support for a, a strong leader in, in many countries, though in some more than others. Thank you. Um, Archie, could I ask you, would, would you go along with the conventional wisdom that uh, globalisation makes uh, good transformative, transformative leadership much harder to achieve, much less likely to be effective? Um, Thank you. I could argue the opposite, that um, if you look at the transformation of communist systems, um, the fact that there was so much more communication, um, I mean, admittedly they took place before the internet really got going, uh, but um, the internet would surely have facilitated uh, the, um, the change uh, rather than have held it back. Um, so I think, uh, you know, it's harder to um, have a, a watertight um, authoritarian system today than it was in the past, you know, to keep out alien ideas. Um, uh, I mean, China certainly has the Great Firewall as well as the Great Wall. Um, uh, Russia is beginning to censor some websites, but on the whole, the Internet still functions there. So um, that aspect of globalization, I think, um, is, uh, it helps to further change rather than retard it. And this will be our last question. Thank you. Thank you for a very interesting talk. If leadership courses don't do any good, how can we develop leaders? If leadership courses don't... If leadership courses don't develop leaders, how can we produce good leaders? If leadership courses don't produce leaders, how can we get good leaders? Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm a bit deaf, aren't I? But the... Well, leadership courses, yes. I mean, I don't think that the quality of leaders has increased along with the, the proliferation of leadership courses. Um, you know, Batley and Ernie Bevan and Iron Bevan and all the others, or Churchill, for that matter, even Butler in his own way, you know, they, they were quite um, remarkable leaders uh, without ever having gone a leadership course in their life. Um, so um, I don't think this book will be... Alas, will be um, compulsory reading on leadership courses. <laughs> right. Well, I'm sure you would want to join me in thanking Archie for a wonderful talk. <laughs>